Hello, and welcome to Game Changers with Vicki Abelson, and that would be me and my guest tonight, or today, do we say today or tonight? It's still light out. It's Mike Rowe. Thank you. Don't I'm rush. Step on camera. your lines. <laughs> <laughs> I promise I won't do that. I, I'm going to muzzle it. I'm going to muzzle it, Mike. All right. I trust you. How are you? I'm better. I've been better, but I've been okay. I'm tired. I'm getting. Uh, well, okay, so. Yes. Can you? Hear? I'm saying I'm getting. getting what? Uh, I'm getting housebound. I'm getting a uh, little house crazy. Uh, we've only had one car for a while because we we're about to buy a. We got rid of our second car, waiting yeah. to get the, the new second car. But I said, why get it? Because it's COVID. It's going to sit in the driveway. Right. Where am I going to go? Okay, so let's talk about this because I, I was telling you before the show that the COVID crazies are the audience here today. And uh, as they start filing in, what, what's been your, what were you doing when lockdown happened? Were you working? Were you in an office? What were you doing? I was uh, rushed home from Canada. Ooh. We were finishing writing the uh, Trailer Park Boys. Um, and I had to get home. Otherwise, I felt like, am I going to be stuck in Canada for the rest of oh. forever? So wait, so like what date? Do you remember what date? It was, was it like right at the lockdown? It was, it was basically at the lockdown. Was it March 17th or something? It was oh, like, that's late. It was like, come home now, or she might be stuck there. Because nobody knew what was happening or what was going on, you know? Was it going on in Canada? You know what? It, it No, it wasn't. It wasn't really a threat there at the time. Nobody uh, really knew yet what it was. And that's why, you know, I had to get back because people were like, is this going to be a crazy thing? Is it going to be, you know, so, hard, but it, um, so, but we had to finish the episodes. Right. So I had to, on my feet, learn how to direct the animation, direct the voices back here at my desktop all the way out into Nova Scotia. So, and they were in separate rooms and the trailer park boys, I don't know how many people know about them, but part of their comedy is the chaos of them yelling at each other. <laughs> I've been watching. <laughs> yeah. So in fact, when we started doing the animated show, because it was live action forever, they, for the first time had to read off of pages. Right one at a time because that's how you do animation. You kind of do your own, uh, each one has its own separate track. Right. They didn't know how to do it. Oh. They just felt uncomfortable to them. So I just said, you know what guys, let's just do it like you're shooting the show. Just give right. everybody body mics, put a boom over you and just talk to each other and we'll record it that way. So it was tricky because we just did it all as one track of them all together. Usually in animation, you get to separate and pick the best ones. And, right, you know. right, right. Um, so then I was faced with that problem again. I was here, they were in Canada, and they were sequestered from each other. So we had to figure out how to get them to, to bounce back and forth like they do. Wow. Um, and and did, it ended up, did it end up sounding natural? It sounded pretty good. It sounded pretty good. We just had to do extra takes, you know, and make sure we had it and, you know. But it was fun. It was a good learning experience, you know, and plus, you know, they're like five hours different. So I had to, we had to, I had to do it at six in the morning, <laughs> you know, I'm like half out of it, but uh, it ended up being a lot of fun, actually. 
Wow, that is. Uh, I I would be interested to watch to watch, I would be interested to watch an episode before you went into lockdown, and then one after, and see if I could detect a difference. Do you think I would be able to? No, no, no. nobody would know. Nobody would know. Um, the pros. It just took a little more time, you know. So how did you feel about getting on the airplane, Mike? When you did you but did you even realize what COVID was at that point? No. 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 Uh, we knew there was a pandemic. We knew it was starting, but we didn't know the the, you know, how bad it was going to be. Right. And so I was in Nova Scotia, and that's a you know it's, it's that's like above Canada. I mean above uh, Maine. You know it's like way, but I got an early flight and I felt good because I'm waiting to get on and there's nobody, uh, there's nobody on the plane. It feels like I'm in the waiting area because they were right. already talking about it being coming from Asia. You know, right. And then just as I sort of relaxed, thinking I was going to have the whole plane to myself, like two <laughs> busloads of people from Asia. No. Onto the flight. No. Oh no. And you know, it's just not knowing what it is. You just you you you, you know just who knows who knows. So I you know, but it was you know fine. Are, are you, a, are you, how would you classify yourself in general? Are you somebody, are you an alarmist? Are you relaxed? Are you calm? Do you, are, what's your thing? It's kind of case by case. Uh, yeah. You know, I have anxiety issues. I'm not a, you know, uh, not, it's not awful, but you know, it's kind of funny, you know, too, like, and I write about this in my book that uh, it, it's an interesting phenomenon, like, and I don't know if people are sort of like this, in different workplaces, but like I could, I could be a writer on a show and almost be like the star of the room. You know, I like feel so relaxed. And then literally the very next show, and it's not completely explainable. I like, I feel like everybody's talking Chinese and I have no idea what's <laughs> going on. I can't get a handle on the show and I don't connect with anybody in the room. And then, then I'm the quiet guy, which is not, good but it's such a crazy phenomenon and then i start to get anxious because like why can't i what's wrong what's happening you know it's, mm. it's a weird thing um maybe people feel that too at the workplace and different jobs i don't know but i think i think in life i mean i can people are always shocked but i can be shy and and not know how to socialize i forget that i know how to socialize and then other times i'm the gariest life of the party so yes i totally relate to that actually so maybe it's a comfort, just a comfort zone that maybe we don't have that much control over. I don't know. I don't know. It's even. Okay. So speaking of having control over, I was mentioning to you earlier, today is my 19th sober birthday. And uh, I was looking at your, you know, I was reading your book and, and uh, I want to, we're going to talk about your book. And I, I wish, you know, there's a way that I could like put a screenshot up here. I'm so technically kind of lamely. Sure, I can do this. Oh, can you hold up the book? It's a funny thing how the professional comedy business made me fat and bald. <laughs> it's wonderful. And for those of you out there who are looking for something good to do, aside from watching Netflix, and Mike has two shows on Netflix right now. I think you've got two running right now, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got the Trailer Park Boys and you've got, um, and I keep saying this name wrong. You've got uh, Paradise Paradise PD, 
Um, and there's old shows I, you know, that I've worked on a thousand years ago, but I was on Futurama for most of the run of that. I think it's on, that's on Netflix. Is that on Netflix now? Is it Netflix or Hulu? I think it's Hulu. I was going to ask you about Family Guy. Uh, did you know John Holmquist? No. John Holmquist is an animator. I guess you guys wouldn't mix, but yeah. No, it's funny. All the animated shows I work on, for some reason, writers never even meet the animators it seems oh wow uh, yeah yeah i guess that makes sense uh so so you your father owned a bar and you would go in that you would frequent that bar and you had a cool jukebox and all that stuff what did you ever and you're and then you're in bars your whole career as a stand-up uh what's your uh your deal with drugs and alcohol you know, it's crazy, I, and especially in the stand-up world. And, and this, I was, I did stand-up in the early '80s, like when uh, the boom happened. But there was a lot of cocaine around in that time. Yeah. And I was in New York City. There was a lot of crack. Uh, and it's funny. I did nothing. I did none of it. I had an occasional drink. Uh, but I guess I was really serious about what I wanted to do. So I didn't want to mess around, and I didn't want to get any habits or anything happening. And now, uh, trapped in the house, I think uh, I'm still not sure if like a shot or two of bourbon a night is a lot. I'm afraid to ask, <laughs> but that's what's been happening. I'm, I'm dealing with the COVID stuff. I Okay, so how seriously have you guys, have you and your wife been taking the COVID? Have you been, do you go to the supermarket? Yes, well, we've both been vaccinated. And we're weeks past the second shot. So we think we're invincible, but you know, we gotta be careful. But I mean, we just try to get out of the house. I mean, we, at one point we were trapped here so much we were using cigarettes for money. Anyway, say a little. Uh, Your COVID jokes, they just keep coming. Oh, so wait, yeah. did you go to the supermarket though when it was like lockdown? Did you go then too? Yes, but it was funny because uh, uh, it was, I felt like I, we would go separately usually. And for yeah. me, it, it felt like that show supermarket sweepstakes where <laughs> I would just like run in and just grab stuff. Like, and I needed like in a sweat and exhausted when I got out, like I could, I, I could shop in like 15 minutes, just get the thing full and ready to go. Are, are you, are you a good masker? Do you, do you, do you wear your mask and behave well in, out in the world? I have, you know, I, I don't leave the house. I, I haven't, I, you know. Uh, Let's talk about this for a minute. So you don't feel, all right, now that I'm double vaccinated also and in full efficacy, I have not been in a supermarket in a year. I just, in the last two weeks, have started going to outdoor restaurants. I've been to five outdoor restaurants in two weeks. I hadn't been in a, I hadn't eaten anywhere but in my house in a year. I felt safe doing that. You don't feel safe going out in the world at all? Well, here's the truth. In the last week, two weeks, my wife and I went to two indoor. No. Oh, stop. How did you do that? Were you, were you, I couldn't do it. I tried to walk in. I couldn't do it. Did you feel nervous? No. I, the double vax thing is helpful, but also like there's nobody around for five tables. You know what I mean? You can't, it's, there were like, you know, there were like 10 people in there in an entire restaurant. 
Really? Because I walked into a deli, into Mort's Deli, and they, it was almost every table. I, I, I can't do this. I, no, I, I won't. I won't do that. I won't go into bars. I won't. I won't go. There's, if there's people shoulder to shoulder, I won't go near it. Even yeah. outside, I won't do that. You know? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And and so all of your work for the last year has been from home. Yeah. You know. Uh, well, you don't know, but I've been doing development over Zoom which gets really exhausting really fast. It's weird, you know. Um, Tell us. Well, first of all, sometimes you'll have like five or six executives and the two other writers and an agent or whatever. Well, and that's it's, exhausting anyway. That's just downright exhausting, no? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it's weird, you're just kind of pitching, you're like you're, you're alone at your desk and you're pitching and it, it feels like you're just yelling down at an empty well. <laughs> No, there's no, there's just, you're, you're yelling at your computer, you know? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's one thing if you're going on to like this and just to kind of have fun and stuff, but when you're like trying to sell, you know, and, and then there's always the complications of like, I've been pitching a lot of animated, animated stuff. So right. there's, we have to drop in, you know, pictures and, and cartoons and stuff like that. And there's always tech issues and. Ugh. So, and do you uh, write? Do you have a writing partner, Mike, or do you write? Are you are so? Are you write by yourself? I usually write by myself. But uh, what's been happening now, more and more, is like uh, my agent or my manager will set me up with like a young writer who they feel like has a viable idea, and then they say meet with him or her, see if it's something you like, and you can help them shape into a pitch, and then shape into a pilot, and that sort of stuff. So, and how is that for you? Because that's kind of like a mentor role. Do you, do you enjoy that? Or is that, how is that for you? Um, it's kind of, it's kind of fun in a way, you know, especially, you know, not, it's, it's kind of good to not be in a writer's room for a while, you know. Uh, and uh, it, it feels less competitive and more about the creativity and, and what you're trying to work on a lot of times in the rooms there's a lot of politics going on and weird camps and you know uh so sometimes it just gets to it's it's some it depends on the show but uh so anyway it's it's just sort of more fun to to uh just work with with within small groups and has anybody been successful any of these young writers that you've worked with uh not particularly. Okay. Um, I mean, also, so did anybody get a development deal from a pitch yet? We uh, actually I'm developing one that's going to star David Cross. And mm -hmm. uh, so we we signed on with a production company. In fact, today was our first meeting of like, okay, how do we redesign it for the people that they want to pitch to? Um, I, this was interesting too. I developed with Nancy Cartwright, who does uh, Bart's Boys, uh -huh. animated Christmas musical with Jason Mraz. Wow. So we had to pitch that on Zoom with Jason Mraz in his studio. So he's flipping around guitar to piano, you know, singing songs. And uh, so it was crazy. It was crazy. Yeah. Um, so 
now that you've got, it sounds like you're very entrenched in the, is it like once you go animated, you can't go back? I mean, it's like, is this like your thing now? Are you like the king of animation, writing, comedy thing? I, I kind of like it because I went back into multicam not too long ago, or maybe it's much longer than I think now that I've lost complete track of time. <laughs> but uh, I went to Two Broke Girls for a season. Right, yes. And I did not care for it. <laughs> I forgot that uh, multicam sitcoms mm -hmm. basically rewrite the show almost every single day until it's time to shoot it. Yeah. And uh, it just feels like it's just not going to end ever. But with animation, it, it's the, the everything takes so much more time that you know, you, you, you can't re keep rewriting it. You can't keep getting a lot of notes. You just have to keep moving forward. You know, once you get caught in notes, you just never will catch up. Right. So, and then you don't have to deal with the actors so much, which, you know, depending on the show, that could be a blessing because, <laughs> you know, the actors will feel less vulnerable because they're really not on camera, you know. Right. Uh, and there's a different level of confidence too, I think with them or, or you know, it's, it, uh, it just seems more interesting to me and more fun and, you know, uh, plus writing animation, you know, it's, it's limitless, you know, especially on Futurama, you know, it, it's, you can go to any galaxy and any planet and <laughs> the, the, the budget doesn't change, you know, on a multicam you go, we want to put in a pet shop and they go, that's, that's $500,000. You sure you want to do that scene? Yeah. Futurama, I said, we want to go to a galaxy of monkeys that's uh, 80,000 light years away. All right. <laughs> Put it in. So, so it, it, your fertile imagination is free to go wild and. Uh, right. You know, right. I have like these pressing questions I want to ask you that are all out of order, but one that I have to ask you right away because I'm so curious. So I know you've done uh, a lot of roasts on Comedy Central. And I know that you did one for the idiot in chief um, before he was the idiot in chief. What what was that like? So so Mike did the the roast for Donald Trump. What do you remember? What year that was? Approximately hmm. like ten well, years ago, maybe or something. Well, it could be already. Yeah. So so what was that? What was that like? Uh, what was that like? Well, first of all, he. He wouldn't know a joke if it bit on the ass, obviously. I mean, that. Wait, I have to pull out my plug. It's driving me crazy. Yeah, I'm listening. So, uh, what's happening? Um, so. Plugs out there. I could see them in the shot and it was bothering me. Sorry. Yeah. So he, like, his notes would be, you know, he would do a joke about, like, his uh, his apartment, his 43,000 square foot apartment in Midtown Manhattan, you know, his note would be, make that uh, 65,000 feet. <laughs> it, you know, it was, it was that. It was like, you know, his net worth of 80 million, and he goes, no, make that uh, uh, 1 billion. You know, it would just, that, that's the only thing he saw in the scripts. Did, uh, he, did he laugh at anything? No. No. <laughs> In fact, what we had to do, yeah, <laughs> we uh, we had to stop 
tape at one point in the middle of it because he wasn't laughing. And then Jeff Ross had a talk with him and he explained, he goes, you have to look like you're having fun. Otherwise it just feels mean. It feels like everybody's being mean. It does, it really affects the tone of the show. So, you know, he had to, and we didn't get him to laugh that much. You know, if you look at that roast, you'll kind of see the same clip being used over and over of him laughing. Um, and then there was another odd thing too. Um, you okay, everything? Yeah, I just spilt something. I'm having, it's like I've been drinking. I haven't drank in 19 years. Hang on, now I'm going to get something to drink. I'm listening now. This, this is my favorite part of the show, the, the, the okay. spilling, the, the comedy spilling. I'm, I'm unplugging things. This is a very professional operation, Mike. That's a funny um, bit. That's one of your best bits, the <laughs> spilling bit. The spilling, the unplugging, unplugging bit. Unplugging. Would, That's my closer. I would open with the spilling. <laughs> open with the spilling, close um, the unplugging. So so wait, who, who roasted him? Who Do you remember who was on the roast? Well, I, I'm always proud of my joke that actually became so popular, became part of the uh, 2016 election. What? Uh, Snoop Dogg yeah. said, uh, Trump is thinking of running for president. Why not? It's, it's not the first time he pushed a black family out of their home. <laughs> Wait, how, did that, how, did that, how did that become part of the election? They it, became, it became part of all these memes and all these uh, political <laughs> websites used it. And um, at one point I clicked on a meme and it had like 30 million hits. Oh, stop. And it, this, the joke just kind of like, uh, it, it's been weird. I, I watching Conan one night with Snoop uh -huh. And they start, and Conan brings up the joke and asks about the joke. <laughs> and of course, Snoop barely remembered it, but. Um, well, yeah, well. And then somebody sent me a picture of uh, the front of a liquor store where it had a sign with all the slide letters, you know, you can put with this, whatever liquor's on sale. Right, right. And somebody wrote in the slide letters of their liquor store, wrote that joke. They spelled out the joke on the sign. Wow, uh, one of uh, your proudest moments, I bet. I know. How many comedy <laughs> writers can say they were on a marquee at a liquor store? All right, so wait, I'm jumping all over the place. So your father at a liquor store, you were in Connecticut, right? Yeah, he had a bar. He had a little corner shitty bar. He had a bar. I was- Was yeah. he an alcoholic, Mike? No, not, he hardly drank, ever. Wow. Yeah. And. And so your upbringing, your, your youth, you were hanging out. I, I, I seem to recall one story that was a little illicit of something that happened in that bar. Right, because this was uh, late 60s. Right. So I was, I kind of remember probably through the ages at least six through nine, I was spending time there at night with my dad, like at prime time of this awful, well, it was, to me, it was cool. It was a fantastic bar as a kid. I mean, there what, was- What there kind was, of clientele was, were at your father's bar? bar? Uh, alcoholics. Yeah, good. Pimps. Oh. Uh, uh, factory workers, 
my hometown was a lot of factories. We made crescent wrenches and clock parts. And uh, there was a factory right across the street. Um, and there was a lot of uh, softball players because my dad had like 10 uh, beer teams in the bar league. And that was, you know, and I, I, you know, I wonder if bars still do that, but that was a way of kind of making money. My dad would recruit these like college age kids. I mean, he had right. these great baseball teams or softball teams. And there was at least, you know, four or five games a week. And as a kid, I was kind of the bat boy scorekeeper. Nice. Uh, or when the pitcher had to warm up, you know, I was the kid, you know, and they would whip underhand fastballs at me at 90 miles an hour in my head. <laughs> And, uh, but, so yeah, I was a kid in this place. And uh, this one thing was, uh, my dad had a, a, a go-go dancer. And I'm still not exactly sure what the go-go dancer was or did exactly. And my dad always made it a point to get me out of there that night that she would show up. Right. So that, as a kid, even made me more curious like, of course what happens what is she <laughs> do what is you know so one night it's you know i look at the schaefer bear clock you know and it's creeping yeah and it's i'm, I'm just getting a, a memory recall to schaefer beer yeah anyway yeah yeah 35 cents a glass or something you know and uh but it's getting near nine o'clock, like go, go girl showtime. And my dad's nowhere around. And I'm like, what's, oh no, what's gonna, am I gonna see what's, you know, and I'm sort of like, you know, hiding alongside the ice machine, like, you know. <laughs> How old are you? I'm like, I was probably nine. Oh, wow. And uh, so sure enough, like the lights go dim. There's like, I don't know, eight people. You know, a couple of pimps and, and drunk guys, an old guy, and you know, and uh, and I just have this weird vision, by the way, too, of like some guy going up to the jukebox. I don't know who he was, but he went behind it and turned up the volume, and then dropped a bunch of quarters in, and it's playing whatever the '70s hit was of you know Three Dog Night or something, and right. there was this little tiny stage, you know, this not that much bigger than a tabletop. And someone turns on the spotlight, which was, I think my dad took it from our Christmas tree, that, that wheel that spins, the red, blue, and green wheel that shines on the metal Christmas tree. Do you know those from the 60s? I'm a Jewish girl. I, I oh, all right. Know. Yeah. Um, so I see her come out from the bathroom, and she's wearing groovy white go-go boots <laughs> and a sparkly bikini. I'm like, oh my God, what's gonna happen? <laughs> and, uh, and then she gets up and starts dancing and starts shimmying. And I'm like, oh my God, is this, is this my first <laughs> sexual experience? What is, you know, is, is, I, I like went through puberty at that moment a little prematurely. All of a sudden, my voice is changing. Everything is happening. And I, I didn't know, like, does she become naked? 
Does she keep dancing? Does she read poetry? <laughs> you know what? And then as it was starting to build up, my dad apparently was like in the basement, you know, doing inventory or something and kind of came up the stairs and realized and he like freaked out and just grabbed me like a fireman, you know, like when a house is on fire and just <laughs> ran me out of the building. And uh, so I, so I've yet, it's funny too, you know, I never asked my dad, I, my dad has passed away, you know, over eight years ago. So that would have been interesting to ask of like, what actually happens? I like, was it, was there nudity? Was it, does she just you dance? Don't know if she no. anything. I'm, wow. I'm going to do some research on that. I, you, ne you never got to come back and see it again, clearly. No, I can't imagine my hometown would allow woman to be partially nude in a public place i don't know i can't imagine well i don't know i mean they did it somewhere i guess i don't know but the kind of stuff i experienced in that bar as a kid you know playing pool with the pimps yo little man come on to play you know uh there was a factory worker who had was laid off and he was coming in a lot and then he was just getting more and more depressed and they shut him off and then he he pulled out a gun and started shooting what and the barmaid got shot in the hand i remember Ooh. and uh and i you know i wondered like even at that age like what why does my dad let me experience this is it some big purpose he has in mind some big life lessons and i was waiting on those car rides home to kind of him to explain things and it was more like yeah don't don't tell your mother i mean that was <laughs> that was yeah. about it wow and so he didn't well parents didn't know then to help us process that kind of stuff i guess no. he no. probably didn't process it for himself yeah um so so mike what was your when did you when did you realize you were funny how did you realize you were funny did you uh did you always want to do this? When did it start? Uh, you know what? It probably started at those bar days because as a kid, especially the softball players, they were all really snarky and funny. And there was this brotherhood of people who would make each other laugh. And I experienced that as a kid, you know. Uh -huh. There was kind of a power in that, you know. Wait, sports guys were funny? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, well, they were, you know, it's funny. I do remember like a thing that they really all laughed about. Yeah. There was a, uh, this older guy, really old, I guess. Well, back then old was, you know, 69 or whatever. But, uh, but he had such a problem drinking and he drank so much that he had the shakes, you know, his hands right. were shakes. And, but they liked him and they made, you know, they, were friends with him and they joked around with him. And so he proudly pulled out a picture of himself when he was in the service and he shows the picture and it's, you know, it's shaking like this. And then the guys are like, and the guy, so one of the, one of the ball players took it and then shook it and goes, yeah, it looks just like you. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the way that those guys broke out laughing, the energy that created to me for me as a kid was like, was something about it and my dad too was really into puns and i saw the how people would react at, at family gatherings and was he funny 
Yeah, yeah, he had a, I think he kind of lived through me vicariously at some point, you know, I think he wanted to see what that felt like to have the power to, you know, make audiences laugh. Um, did, he, so, did he encourage you? Did your parents encourage you? Yeah, it's interesting, you know, the, there was a sort of a lot of tension in our family, you know, and uh, part of what made it better was those moments where the family would gather in front of the TV and watch sitcoms, right? So there you go. It, it was those moments of calm and the family laughing together. And then me as a right. kid going, well, there's something about this and cut to me writing sitcoms. But my dad and I would bond over uh, the old comics on TV. Okay, so like who did you guys, did you watch Ed Sullivan? Where, where were you seeing your comedy? Yeah, mostly Ed Sullivan. Right. Uh, I think there were a lot of variety shows on at that time, you know? Mm -hmm. So and it's, I think the Dean Martin Roast might've started then. I forget how early those started. Um, right. So my dad would laugh and that kind of became the fabric of our relationship. Mm. So in fact, when uh, for my dad's 60th birthday, and this is in his, he was still living in Connecticut in a small town called Wilkett. Mm -hmm. For his 60th birthday, I hired Henny Youngman to show up at his birthday party. Stop, how? No, you didn't. <gasps> yeah. Oh my, how old was Henny at that point? Henny, I bet, was in his 90s. Oh my God, I cannot believe you got Henny Youngman to come to a private party. Yeah. Oh um, was my, he one of your dad's favorites? Yes, absolutely. Um, he he would he would try to work Kenny Engman jokes into his life. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> I clearly remember as a little kid, like trying to get out of school, mm -hmm. and I was pretending I, I was sick. And my dad very dryly said, "Well, does it hurt when you go like this?" And I go, "Yeah." And he goes, well, "Don't go like that." <laughs> um. So, so, so Henny Youngman comes to your father. Did your father lose his mind? Did he go crazy? I mean, I can't even imagine. Well, yeah, if you think about it, it's, you know, it's, it's his finished off basement. Yeah. He's got 90 of his closest friends and family, and it was a surprise for him. And, and first of all, if you think like a home, small hometown, you know, if you, if you see like the local weatherman, Across the street, it's like a celebrity sighting. So you, you can imagine like Henny Youngman showing up in your house. And uh, so I, there was a sound system, you know, set up for the DJ or whatever. And then I got up to wish my dad happy birthday. I could even sense my dad was a little nervous because what is, is my son going to do jokes now in front of everybody? And if it doesn't go well, and it's what, you know, oh, yeah. I said, you know, well, I brought a, a friend with me from New York who wanted to come up and tell some jokes. And then Henny comes down the stairs of the basement with his loud jacket and the violin. Oh my God. And, and my dad at first, I'm sure thought like, you know, what if one of his friends is gonna do an impression? And so <laughs> when he saw him like come down to the bottom of the stairs, he's like, shot up and spun around and you know like he couldn't believe it and Henny just shows up he's almost in his face the, the violin and 
I got a son, 18 years old, 19 if I let him. You know, um, and did like 15 minutes. Wow. It was crazy. Were people we, going crazy? I mean, everybody yeah. been going crazy. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, it wow. was really special, and he talked about it for the rest of his life. That is like one of the greatest gifts I've ever heard somebody give their parent. That's spectacular, Mike. That's spectacular. It's, wow. It, on his uh, on his deathbed, um, and when he was in hospice, mm. his wife at the time, you know when I was, I was going to be alone with my dad, she said, can you read the scriptures to him? And then she left the room and I put the scriptures aside, went to a Henny Youngman joke book on the phone. And one of the last things my dad heard was his son rattling off <laughs> Henny Youngman jokes. I love it. I lo <laughs> okay. So, so was there any, was there, Anything else before comedy, before you realized the power of comedy, was it when you were a little kid, was there anything else you wanted to do or was this it from the get-go? Um, I wanted to learn how to fix TVs. Oh, because? It's my grandfather did it. I was intrigued by it. I think ultimately uh, I, I wanted my own TV for myself. So maybe that's why I wanted to fix it. I'm not sure exactly. But I would watch my grandfather do it. And he really didn't know what he was doing. He was kind of self-taught. He wow. would just bang a radio around and try to get it to work. And um, <laughs> I said, oh, I could do that. Um, so uh, when, uh, when I took tests for college, it was sort of, I was sort of deemed not college material. <laughs> I don't know who decided that. And I ended up going to a, a technical high school. Uh, so I learned how to fix TVs and radios oh, wow. and stuff like that in high school. Mm -hmm. And then out of high school, I got a job working for NASA. I worked on the space shuttle. You what? I, yes. Um, Doing what exactly? Well, if you want to know exactly, uh, we uh, built these components called transducers. And they took fuel and air pressure and converted them into digital readouts. And I had to do all the testing and circuit shunt building to keep them within proper tolerances under certain heat and cold. Now, was this something you were already doing stand-up, I assume, when you were doing it? Were you doing stand-up yet? Yeah, I did it uh, starting in high school. Yeah. That's what I thought. Okay, so I would assume once you started doing stand-up, you'd already made the decision that that's what you wanted to do. Is that so? It's funny, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing that I think a lot of people hit in life, this certain uh, pivot point, this kind of line of demarcation where uh, I, I think and I wonder where, you know, there's a lot of kids in there throughout their childhood who say, I'm going to be a professional basketball player, I'm going to be a rock star, I'm going to be a comedian. Mm -hmm. So we all kind of have these flights of fancy that you're allowed to have at that age, you know? And so I started doing stand up and liking it and having some, a tiny bit of success. I mean, I'm just in locally. And then I got that job at NASA. So then you hit that line of like, well, here's an opportunity to start my real life. You know what I mean? Like this is what's supposed to happen. 
you put your fantasy aside. It's you put it put aside the I'm not going to be in professional sports. I'm not going to be a, you know astronaut. I'm not you know. You go. I, I here's a job in engineering. I still had my high school girlfriend. You know, it's like that path was like okay, that's the way it's supposed to happen, and I started to accept that. Well, you know? uh, that's what I was going to ask next. Were you okay with that? Did could you could you see your life playing out that way? Well, I started to because I thought that's what's supposed to happen because the especially in a, a small town, you talk to people about, yeah, I want to be on TV and, and they're like, yeah, sure. You know, like you don't, it doesn't seem like you're really going to do it, you know, so you don't really quite believe it yet. So I just started to go on that path. But then the stand-up thing just kept nagging at me. It just, I had no control over it, you know? So you just, I, I you know, it makes, it makes me wonder how many people have that moment and then decide, I, well, I can't do that because it's so crazy, so I have to do this, right. you know? Mm -hmm. And then- what, So what, what tipped you over, Mike? Like when you were first doing comedy, were you coming into the city or were you doing it in Connecticut? Just, just in Connecticut. No, this was 1977, 78. So there was no comedy boom. There were no comedy clubs. It wasn't like, you know, it got to the point if you had like a car wash or a <laughs> ice cream store, you they would convert it into a, you know. So what I did, I was whatever, 17, I would go into a, a bar that had a band and right. I would ask the manager, I said, when they go on a break, can I just go up and tell jokes? Get out of here. You're very ballsy. I, yeah. I think... Uh, and I hope my sons get this thing of whatever they want to do, where you just are so driven and so sure of what you want to do, you're going to do whatever it takes to get there, you know? And how would that work out? So you'd go into a bar, you say, can I do a few jokes? Would, when it's out of context like that, would people laugh? Could you get them? Could you get the audience? Most of the time. Mm-hmm. I, part of my act is I would do these stupid vocal impressions. I was going to add, that was my next question. So what kind of comedy were you doing at the beginning? Well, the, those kind of things would get their attention. Um, like, like, give us an example. I, I can't do it without a microphone, but I would do a siren noise, right? In fact, right. as a kid, I was able to do it so loud that I hang out in the corner with my friends. I do it and cars would pull over. They loved that. It was so I would kind of incorporate that into jokes and stuff like that and grab their attention. It's funny, I don't remember my act that much. Well, it's years ago, that's all right. It was uh, well what I, I remember something from your book that I believe is what sparked you to realize that you were funny. I don't want to prompt you, uh, but it was a it was it was a story about getting bullied, as I recall. Oh yeah. Well, it was just another clear example of like the power of humor where uh, this bully just decided he was going to, uh, you know, on my way home from school was going to be waiting for me somewhere on my path home. Were you a little kid? Were you runty or something? Grammar school. I wasn't little. I don't think. No. So why would a bully? I was vulnerable, I guess. <laughs> uh, so he finally had me 
you know, like it's, it was finally that moment. And he's like, I forgot exactly what happened, but it's like, now it's time for me to kick your ass. And I, it was almost by accident. I was like Woody Allen. I was like, okay, but is, can I go home and, and change my pants? They're, they're new. And if I get them dirty, my mom will get mad at me. <laughs> and he, he laughed so much that he just kind of shoved me on the shoulder and then left and then never bothered me again. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So we have to take, we have to take a segue here. Speaking of Woody Allen. So I worshiped the, worshiped the man and saw him on Broadway and played against Sam every move. I mean, just worshiped the man. And I believed him and didn't believe Mia. And then uh, I thought she was cranky. And then I watched the documentary, Allen versus Farrell. Have you seen it? Yes and no. Uh, I saw, first of all, I should clarify that I have friends who are friends with Woody Allen pretty close friends. Mm -hmm. So I kind of heard everything as it was unfolding at times or sort of the second wave of when it was unfolding. Okay. And first of all, Woody Allen didn't even quite pay attention to it because he thought it was so ridiculous. I mean, he's going to say what he's going to say, but uh, they, they, they were able to tell me kind of the details that they understood, not only from what came from Woody Allen, but was actual court testimony, court documents, investigations, other investigations. Um, so the problem with the Mia documentary mm -hmm. is that it only tells one side of the story. Well, because he didn't want to do it. They right, but he already, it's because he already told it. And he also knew that she still had complete control over the documentary. So it would not be good for him to do it because then it could even make it worse because a lot of it was manipulated. So in other words, like I know I only made it as far as it proved to me it was bullshit when this just me personally, mm -hmm. when as soon as they started, like they had home video of him playing with the, his, the kids, the way a dad plays with kids, mm -hmm. But then they slow it down and play like the horror music. And it's like, you know, no, no, can't, can't. So uh, we'll never know exactly, exactly what happened. But the fact that it was proven so many times in so many different ways by so many different factions that it didn't happen, that I'm going to lean in that direction. I mean, why would the courts let him and his wife adopt kids, you know? So, um, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's such a, you know, it, it's, it, the other thing I understand about people who do that, it's like, it's people who do that, it never happens just once, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, it's extremely complicated. And uh, in truth, I never, you know, I'm more apt to listen to people who are close to him mm -hmm. and can point to documentation uh, than I would to someone who's, who's angry with him, you know, and who has complete control over that documentary. But 
I know so many people now are going to look at it and really believe that he's guilty. There were a couple of really damning things. One of them was he's on the phone with Mia and he gets a call in from his attorney and he said, uh, he's saying to Mia, yeah, I, I'm not recording it. I don't know how to record. And then he's saying to his attorney, oh yeah, I'm recording her. Don't worry. And then he's, he's kind of pumping her to say things. And there was a lot of manipulation going on on both sides. Um, right. Cause like, I don't, I don't fully understand the naked pictures he had of her. Of you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't okay. Know. So, so let's move on from, from Woody. And while we're here, so you're friends with Louis CK, you've known Louis from, from the beginning of your careers. Um, how did that, what was that like? What did you feel about that? Well, or did uh, you feel about that? You know, first I, I kind of, I didn't know Louie that much personally. We did sort of hang out together with other comics at bars, you know, friends' apartments and stuff like that. So it was always it was always kind of a superficial, but mm -hmm. fun, you know. Right. Um, but you know, he's he's just kind of a weird dude. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling what happened really happened, mm -hmm. you know, um, I, and I don't know. Yeah, I just don't know. I mean, the other weird thing to think about that, though, is like, if he was, if it were the 70s and he was a rock star, it's like that stuff happens right. every night, you know, not that that's an excuse, but, you know, and maybe his head somehow thought it wasn't as serious mm -hmm. or something. I don't, I don't know how the, in other words, I certainly never been in that part of his head. So I don't know. Okay. So Cindy Beagle, I was telling you earlier, Cindy Beagle on a, wrote on a lot of sitcoms of Gary Marshall shows. And she was asking me to ask you, um, how th what has, have the writer's rooms changed? Like, are there, are there women that write on these animated kind of very guy kind of centric shows? Um, yes, yes. Um, the, there's a couple of things. The, the writer's room is kind of the safe place to say anything you want. Obviously you can't be racist and you, you know, you can't insult someone in a dirty way. There's a fun way to insult people, but <laughs> but the language, in my experience, can be foul. You can say the, the raunchiest, stupidest things because they're, we're comedy writers. So we, it's not funny to us unless it's like beyond the joke. You know what I mean? That's, it's, it's never serious. Right. Um, but the rooms I've been in, the people have been respectful in certain ways anyway. I've never encountered a situation We've had women writers. There's, I, I really have not encountered a situation where people have been appropriate, inappropriate with each other. Mm -hmm. There's always some harsh insults, but in a fun way. But right. so, uh, and it's weird. It, um, I feel like a, like the Trailer Park Boys. They are those guys. But <laughs> yes, they are. That's their life. That's how they live their lives. I mean, I I would go out drinking with those guys, and I'm. I'm living the show with them. Uh, 
but that's a blast. But that's hard because it was just me and those guys pretty much writing the show. So that was that was the extent of that. Oh. Uh, but I, I, I hear interesting stories um, uh, on a black show. One of the black writers used the N word as part. It's just part of his vernacular mm -hmm. and then was called into HR. Uh, and he's like, you know, I'm black, you know, you know, <laughs> and I, I don't remember the outcome, but I think he, I think he left the show because he's like, oh. I, I can't, you know, Wow. the cancel culture is getting a little, it's a little scary sometimes, you know, if people are going to be taken down from a tweet they did, you know, 14 years ago, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's a little sketchy, you know. That kind of stuff, but um, these animated shows, you guys like it's it's like it's anything. I mean, you guys are so, so over the top of pushing this. Well, um, like you don't. There's no such thing as political correctness in animated comedy. You know, I'm trying to understand that because I, I'm even lost in it. Because if you think of the roasts. Yeah. Those are awful. In fact, I guess it's been a couple of years since we've done like a true roast. It was, the last one was, uh, I think, Bruce Willis. Um, but that was four years ago. But for some reason you're allowed, and I don't know if it's the context, you can just do any hardcore, racist, homophobic. <laughs> and nobody, right, nobody says anything, right? So right. Why, why are you allowed to do it there? But then you did a tweet in 2001 about a sex thing and you can't host the oscars now it's weird to know the rules you know mm -hmm. i agree all right so let's let's go back so you're doing stand-up you're working for nasa how do you decide to to ditch the the steady job and well it's funny how fates sometimes step in mm -hmm. uh right when i was trying to figure out what I was doing with my life. I heard on the radio that they're having a stand-up comics competition in Hartford, Connecticut. Like what? And the prize was dinner for two and a limo to New York City to audition at the improv. I'm like, I get, what? You know, because I, I already had learned about the improv and started trying to figure out what is this magical place that I see like Freddie Prinze co-hosting Mike Douglas and he's showing clips from the, the improv club and uh and in fact one of these nights that I went on uh stage at a bar in Connecticut mm -hmm. there was a uh, the band was this Italian like Louis Prima band you know this really fun you know the, the the singer was pulling people from the audience dancing around it was just this fun thing and it was uh nick apollo forte from the woody allen movie and he, i found out he was from my hometown and then he talked to me after the show and he was the first to talk about the improv and this club and i think you should go there and you know so then so then yeah this contest shows up and i'm like well i gotta do it i gotta you know and i won the contest auditioned at the improv and then passed auditions wow and, and who, who are the comics 
uh, who were the regular comics at the time that you? I remember uh, Joe Piscopo was MC. Mm -hmm. I saw Rick Overton that night get a standing ovation mm -hmm. at the Little Improv Club, which I, I think that's the only time I've seen anyone get a standing ovation. Wow. Um, Gilbert. Uh, Gilbert, when uh, his eyes were still open. <laughs> were they? And he wasn't yelling. Wow. I remember he would, he picked up like a stack of napkins, right? And then it was flipping through like a book. Mm -hmm. And he's like, the Bible. And it goes to the back. About the author. <laughs> Jesus was born in Brooklyn. You know, just do a whole run. And you flip the pages like this. <laughs> and as you can see, a fat lady with a hula hoop. But, you know. Um, so, yeah, that, that, night was very powerful and Fred Stoller Fred Stoller was about my age maybe younger mm -hmm. you know doing his my, my mother says my bro brothers are better than me in this my brother's better than me in that I don't have a brother <laughs> <laughs> Fred's done the living room a couple times oh that's funny yeah but and also like wasn't weren't those the days or was that before that what Larry David would go up and like he nobody would laugh at him well, Larry, first of all, whenever Larry would go on stage, there had to be a comic ready to go on at any minute. <laughs> I saw Larry walk on stage and then kind of look in the audience and go, nope, not tonight, and then leave. <laughs> and, and then at one point, some lady just in the front just kept laughing and laughing, and then he just turned and goes, what are you laughing at? <laughs> Yelling at her for laughing. And uh, and one night I'm in the bar, and he's he's killing on stage. Oh, I and, didn't think he did kill. Every yeah. story I've heard is that he was not very well received. No, no once in a once in a while when he caught a wave, you know, it was like it's Larry. Uh, I'm very good at masturbating. Maybe he had a whole bit. I am the great masturbator. I would people would come fill Yankee Stadium to see Larry the masturbator. And, uh, <laughs> So uh, I'm I'm in the bar, and he's off stage. He's coming off stage, and the audience still applauds. He's still, but he hits the bar, and they can still. I go, Larry, they're still they're still applauding in there. He goes, well, listen, how they're applauding. <laughs> That's very funny. So okay, so you you pass the you pass the improv. You're still working at NASA. So what happens here? Um, I was, are you, are you married? Are you single? Are you, what are you doing? Well, I still had my high school girlfriend in Connecticut mm -hmm. and everything was, the relationship was still great. Although starting to change because it's weird at 17, you don't, there's so much you don't know, obviously. But instincts start to kick in, kick in, you know. So she could see like I was going on a road that probably was not going to be a road for her, and I suspected the same thing, you know. And then somehow we just naturally broke up. It just one day we're like, it was almost like an honest discussion of like this. We can kind of see what's happening here, mm -hmm. you know. So. 
so that was a, you know, it was a two-year high school thing. So that was a rough breakup. Right. Um, I would go to New York. I would drive from Connecticut once a week to take an improv class in the improv. Mm-hmm. And so I got to know people and see how it's run and all that sort of stuff. And uh, there was a bartender there, uh, 75 year old, uh, really heavy man, look kind of looked like, uh, uh, kind of like Albert Hitchcock. And at some point I said, you know, I'm, I'm just gonna start looking for apartment. I think it's time for me to come out here. And he goes, well, you know, I, I have an apartment across the street in the meantime, you could stay on my couch until you find something. And I'm like, oh, shit, jerks, I'm coming to New York, you know. And uh, great way to start your life, you know, 18 into the crack-infested west side, you know. <laughs> um, so and it, it was weird when I was hanging out at the improv. It's like, oh, you're staying with Al? It was like weird things started. Like, oh, you're oh, you're the one with Al. And you're the, I'm like, what, what are they, what's going on? <laughs> So I kind of found out when one night I come home after hanging out with comics at you know two or three in the morning, getting my uh, dusty couch ready, you know, to go to sleep, and then Al in the bedroom right next to the living room, he starts screaming from his bed. It's like, oh my God, there's there's a ghost! I'm like, what? Right in front of you, there's a ghost. Can you see him? I'm like, no, no what? Think. What does he want? There's a ghost in front of you. And I'm like, I don't, I don't see a ghost. He goes, well, he's gone. The ghost is gone. And he's like panicked. He's, he's just, the ghost is gone. And then it's like a weird pause. And he goes, it, if you're scared and, and you want to come in here, there's uh, plenty of room in the bed. And uh, it's funny, my, my young face still didn't understand <laughs> what had happened. I didn't get it you didn't go into the bed did I, you no i didn't do that i, I knew that like and uh and i think i stayed there for another six months wow. breaking the poor man's heart i guess oh um because it wasn't until it actually wasn't until like three years after i moved uh i was hanging out with some people uh at the club and i wrote up the story about the gay guy and the ghost <laughs> And then um, one of the waitresses started laughing hysterically. And I go, what? And he goes, well, you know, he's gay. And I went, oh, <laughs> like I was so dumb. I was, you know, I didn't, I was. So naive, Mike. My, isn't that lovely? So, all right. So you break up with a girlfriend, you move into the city, you're doing comedy. This is when now is, th this is like the start of the boom, right? Yeah, um, we didn't quite know it yet. I mean, I was kind of there just before. Right. It was an interesting time for stand-up, at, at least at New York at the Improv, because every act was very different, you know, uh, very distinct. Like there was Mark Wiener. I don't know if you heard of Mark Wiener. We have these homemade puppets, sort of these dark, you know, dirty puppets. Um, <laughs> I don't know Mark Wiener. Yeah, uh, Jimmy Brogan. Uh, yes, I know Jimmy. He just did audience stuff. The whole set was just audience stuff. Mm -hmm. um, 
Richie Morris. You probably don't know Richie Morris. He was a writer, Letterman, the first in the morning show, but he was this really odd, like an odd genius. Mm. The night, first night I saw him, he had like plastic Ziploc bags and a bread bag and he wore them, like put them on his head and, his, and did like a fashion show. <laughs> and it was just like, he'd go, oh, you like? And then he would go back and flip them around and you like? And it sounds so familiar to me, but I don't know, maybe not, yeah. Um, and then Gilbert was his own, his, you know, and Overton, I mean, just very different, very uh, interesting points of views. There were odd comedy teams, I remember back then. And um, like the, that, that way was moving out just as I came in. Um, Ronnie Shakes, I don't know, you probably don't remember Ronnie yeah, Shakes. He, yeah, yeah. He, he was amazing one-liners mm -hmm. and Seinfeld wasn't around that much yet. He was more uh, at the comic strip, but he came right. once in a while. And it was New York was very divided that way with the improv and the strip, and because Gabe was all comic strip, and you know what it is? It's just hard to get across town. Where for me, the West Side was at one point pretty amazing because I remember doing eleven shows in one night. How did you do that? It started on the Upper West Side. There was. Some there's a place called Stand Up New York. Oh, yeah. Start there, shoot down to the improv. And then Caroline's was on 8th Avenue. Keep going downtown to the village. There was the Comedy Cellar, the Boston Comedy Club, the Village Gate. And I did a lot of, open for a lot of acts at the bottom line. Wow. And then sometimes it worked where then I can go back uptown and start over again and go down again. It wow. took a lot of uh, curation of schedule, but... <laughs> how did you did you take did you subway how did you get how did you get around it, it had to be cabs otherwise it just wouldn't make it so how are you guys making money i mean because those sets were like peanuts right they were like 25 dollars sets or something not even five i think at the comedy cellar when in the well US. first of all my rent was 340 dollars a month okay and i was in midtown manhattan it's pretty crazy wow the studio was a good sized studio um and I think on the weekends, I could, I could make a few hundred on the weekends if I really, you know, scramble. Did you stay in the city or did you do those like, those like Scarpati gigs? Did you go out and do the gigs outside of the city or no? I did the one-nighters in Jersey. I tried going on the road and I just didn't like it. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, it was just a mess. Um, stuff like I remember uh, like working in Atlanta or something and uh, they put me in this great old hotel. I go, all right, this is cool. And then the other act on the show came to me and said, look, I, uh, I need the money. So I told the uh, booker that I'm not staying in my room so I can get the money that would be spent on the room. He would give me the money. He said, but I don't have a place to stay. Can I stay in your room with you? And I'm like, oh God, I didn't know how to say no. I mean, I was like, he, his hat in hand. And I'm like, is that gonna be okay? You won't even know I'm here. And I go, all right, all right. And then he goes out in the hall and comes back in with his wife and kid. <laughs> oh. oh my God, wow, wow. But I, you know, I tried to, you know, it's, I, I tried to go across town and try to work, see if I can go back and forth, but it's just too hard. And during the boom, 
it was again, you know, anybody who had a building tried turning into a comedy club. So there was a strip club uh, that decided they wanted to do comedy, change its venue, but it, you know, it didn't really, you didn't really put a lot of effort in it. The poles were still there and the, <laughs> the mirrored floor and, you know, you can, <laughs> still reeked of, you know, cheap perfume and. What club was that? It was called uh, Racks to Riches. Mm. It didn't last long. And I was there when it first opened. Uh-huh. And I didn't want to, the guy, the owner saw me at the improv and says, come and do my club, like this old school, like gangster kind of like, <laughs> like a Joe Pesci guy. Yeah. Come over from across town, come do I go, I don't really like to, just come check it out. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, you don't want to do my club? Like, he's like threatening me now. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'll. And uh, so I t do the track across town and on the stage, there were two life-size stuffed clowns on either side of you. And they would spin on these motors, these spinning clowns. So you hear the whirring of the <laughs> like, you know, Slovakia on Times Square. And I show up and there's nobody there. There's no audience. And I'm, I already have my curated night scheduled and I exactly gonna, knew it was gonna happen. And the Joe Pesci guy's like pacing and he's pissed off and he's his buddy at the bar with the bad hairpiece. He's like, oh, Joey, what the hell, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't want to say anything because he'll probably take me in the alley and beat the shit out of me. So I'm just waiting, see what he's going to do. And then he just, at one point, it's like almost a half hour and nobody's there. And he looks in the room and he looks at his partner. He looks up on the stage and he just goes, Joey, shut off the clowns. <laughs> I used to work at a place on the east side called Good Times in Rocco. This sounds like a Rocco store. Did you know Rocco from Good Times? I, I worked there twice, maybe. Hmm. Here's what I remember about Good Times. Uh, I worked there once, and then they shut down for renovations. Mm -hmm. and then I went back, and they painted the rug, the wall-to-wall -wall rug, black. They just painted it. <laughs> I don't even remember that. That's hysterical. Yeah. Do all uh, that. What, what years were you there? Um, 85, 86. Okay. I had a very short-lived run. Oh. Uh, and did you go to other places? No, that, yeah, but I, but I, I was running around everywhere and I was just brand new with my five minutes. But then I started, I did a show for Gabe at the Rock and Roll Cafe. I like did the opening spot and I ended up becoming a rock and roll promoter and running that and booking that club and my whole life changed from there. So oh, wow. it just was kind of one of those things. But so, so how did you segue from, so you're making like 300 and something a week and you have a cheap apartment and, but you're ambitious and you're doing a lot. How, how does it end up, how does the door open for you? Um, has the door opened yet? Because, uh, yeah, because you don't want to go on the road. I mean, it's hard to be a stand-up and not be willing to go on the road. So did you know you wanted to segue to television? Was that always the, the thing? Well, yeah, yeah, because, you know, I'm 25 or whatever, and uh, 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 I'm already like, well, I don't like going on the road. So what happens when I'm 50? Because, you know, I'm not, I knew then I'm not going to be 
Robert Klein. I'm not going to be George Carlin. So what happens, you know? But right. I already had started writing. Um, that's Mike, tell before we get to this, tell, tell us what was your act. What was your act like when you were no longer green? You were doing eleven shows a night. Were you an observational? Were you what was what what was your thing? I think it was more silly and dry. Mm -hmm. Like one of my favorite things to do was I would uh, I would pretend to kind of stop for a second and go I I kind of like I don't know if, I don't know if this is a good time to bring this up but uh, I, I like to talk about for a second just uh, I'm doing a lot of great work with um, the Balloon Animal Adoption Center. <laughs> and, uh, but the, the most fun part for me for that bit was when people would laugh, I would just look at them like, why, why are you laughing? Why would you laugh at that? <laughs> you know, and then I would try to continue like, because we uh, we do a lot of great, just like deadpan, you know, uh -huh. we do a lot of great work there. We get deformed balloon animals off the streets. <laughs> you know, they got uh, the deflated limbs and big genitalia. And, uh, we don't have the ceiling space for these animals. And uh, if we don't get them adopted, we pop them, we do. And needlessly tens of thousands are popped every year. Um, but I, when I was, again, when I was a kid, when I was 17, I was, I would record comedians on TV with my little recorder and, and take the jokes apart and try to understand what they're okay, funny. So who were the comics that were impacting you? Who were your favorite comics? Well, you? my favorite was Rodney Dangerfield. And as a kid, I'm doing, you know, jokes about my wife and my, you know, but they're jokes. But right. so one night uh, after Rodney did his set, sits down with Johnny and there was a moment where he was really t talking about his real life which he never does. But he talked about his club in Manhattan called Danger Fields, which I didn't know about. And then he talked about when he started stand-up, he went by the name of Jack Roy. So my little gears in my vocational school head started spinning. <laughs> and I said, you know, I know his jokes and his style so well. I'm going to write a page of jokes and send them to Jack Roy at Danger Fields in New York. So I got my mom's big manual typewriter and hunt and pecked, you know, a page of jokes. How old, how old are you? 17, I think. Okay. Maybe about 17. Uh-huh. And uh, sent them to him. And, you know, of course, weeks go by and I'm like, I kind of forgot. And then one day after dinner, I'm down in my finished off basement bedroom, you know, phone rings and my mom's at the top of the stairs is like, Mike, there's a Rodney on the phone for you. Oh, stop. What? Uh, and then it's like, yeah, yeah, hello, hello. Hey, Mike, it's Rodney. How are you doing? You okay? You all right? How are you? Hey, I'm like, <laughs> I got your jokes. You know, they're pretty good. They're all right. You know, uh, you know, and I'm like, what? I'm, I'm, you like my jokes? You know, yeah, but they're not for me, you know, but they're good. I like, you know. And he, he kept me on the phone for 15 minutes. And I said, I want to do stand up. He was, he was telling me about catch and all the clubs and don't come to my club. It's no good, you know? And uh, so that again was another validation of like, holy shit, I, I must, I, I guess I'm onto something. I don't know, you know? 
Did you sell like did you sell jokes to 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 comics? Yeah. In your career? Yes. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until later that I went back to Rodney after I moved into New York and I called him. I didn't remind him of, you know, the couple of years before. He never would remember, but um Right. And I called him, I said, Hey, I got some jokes. Could are you buying? And he says, Yeah, come on over. And I'm like, and I didn't write, I didn't have any jokes. It was I kind of cornered myself <laughs> to like you know, yeah, so I'm like, on over. so Rodney's waiting and I'm like, I spent a couple of days, just some of my yellow notepad, just scribbling out. And then I go to his club. I think it was the middle of the day, I don't know, but he has this windowless, you know, uh, uh, dressing room in the basement at his club. And I'm, I'm maybe eight, 19, 18, 19 but I'm pitching my jokes to him and he's pacing and his blue robe is wearing his- I was gonna say the robe and slippers. It has to be the robe and slippers. Yeah, and uh, and I'm not I'm not scoring at all. I'm like, um, my wife, I don't wanna tell you. And he's like, oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. And then at one point he stops and I'm like, maybe did I hit this? And then he turns and then starts peeing in the sink. Like, I don't know, give me a toilet in here, you know? I gotta pee in the sink. I'm like, well, I guess I'm in showbiz. <laughs> No, is that how? Um, well, Rodney but, wasn't one of the people you sold jokes to. Um, I didn't. I, I I think I sold one or two, but I I, I kind of moved on, and I don't know. If, it was because people kind of found me. Mm -hmm. uh, Rip Taylor. Wow, uh, I just went to his memorial like right before COVID. Yeah. Mm. Um, he. It was funny, I, I, because of my technical high school training, mm -hmm. I worked at an AV repair shop in New York and I got fired. And then I thought, well, I'm sunk, my life's over. And then that day I got called to do a thing called Dial-A-Joke. You ever hear of Dial-A-Joke? Yes, I remember Dial-A-Joke. And you, people pay $2 a minute or something and, you, and a comedian would tell you jokes and it's like, Really, you're gonna call and hear Mike Rowe, you know, what, uh, you know. But the guy who did Dial a Joke said, uh, well, we got Rip Taylor and he wants to do a bunch of sessions. So do you wanna write his Dial a Jokes? So I ended up writing those for him. And then I had just got fired. And then they, those were like, it was like $1,200, you know, and that was like, holy cow, that's, is that my year's salary, <laughs> you know? Um, so uh, yeah, I sort of think who else? Byron Allen was buying jokes. I somehow oh. writing for him. Uh, I don't remember who else. So then, how does this now? How do you end up writing for television? How did that happen? Um, I part of it was learning as a comedian. Mm -hmm. You're home all day doing nothing, <laughs> and. Uh, I more and more thought about because I was having success writing jokes, mm -hmm. making some money. It was like, it was almost like printing money. You know, it was like, to me, it was like, so wait, are you giving me $50 for the, you know? <laughs> and uh, I just became more intrigued of how sitcom works and writing. Mike, had you ever, had you studied writing? Had you studied screenwriting? Did you have training? No. In fact, no. I hardly, I hardly read any books in my youth. 
-hmm. you know, so I had a lot of catching up to do. Um, so yeah, I, I became more and more intrigued by that. Uh, I stumbled onto a show in Manhattan Cable in 1980 called The Uncle Floyd Show. Oh my God. Do you, do you know the Uncle Floyd show? Um, Uncle Floyd, he did my rock and roll cafe and Jimmy Vivino, his brother, has done my stuff and the Vivinos are wonderful, yes. Oh, I, uh, Uncle Floyd just got over COVID, Floyd Vivino. Oh. He, he had a hard time with it. I'm, I'm not even sure if he's fully recovered at this point. Um, but when I stumbled onto the show, mm -hmm. like I fell in love with it instantly and I would just watch it religiously. Mm -hmm. To the point like, well, maybe I can send him some sketches and actually try writing sort of scripted things. Uh-huh. And I did the same thing I did with Rodney. I called him. I said, I got sketches. Could I send them over? And he goes, yeah, well, you know, we can't pay you. But I'm like, so I didn't have any sketches. So I wrote some. Okay, wait, Mike. How did you do that? Okay, so you don't have training. Did you re research it? Did you just put pen to paper? What did you do? The thing I remember I, was there was a Saturday Night Live book that was out, like an oversized book, and it had mm -hmm. script page samples in it. Uh-huh. And I that was like, I'm going to use that format. I'll just type it like that, which, funny, it was uh, the wrong format. They just made it that way so it would fit in the book. <laughs> uh, but that's how I sent him stuff and he liked it and invited me down to the studio in the middle of Newark, New Jersey in the middle of the night and they getting off the path train and you know wasn't particularly pretty but um, but I ended up and I still have all the videotape of it I probably wrote three hours worth of stupid Uncle Floyd sketches but it was the first place where I like taught myself how to write at least what I, what felt funny to me, you know. Wow. It was, uh, if people don't know the show, it was kind of a, it was kind of a, a 1960s kids show, but for stoners. It was you know? kind of like a soupy sales-ish thing, yeah. kinda, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which was, which was kind of special for me because that was the first thing I remember laughing at when I was a little kid was the Soupy Sales show. So it was kind of an interesting full circle. <clears throat> and then it wasn't until I found an actual script from Hollywood. I found an old script in a bookstore, in a used bookstore. And that was, at that point, it was like finding the holy grail. You know, I was what like- Do you remember what it was a script for? It was a Whitney, uh, a Whit Thomas show called, uh, um, you're a big girl now. I don't know. It, okay. But it was the same writer that created Golden Girls. Oh, wow. Um, so to find a script, was it kind of demystified a lot of things. You know what I mean? You see it on the page. Mm -hmm. And right away, it has all the clues of like, act breaks. There's an act break every whatever page. And there's how many jokes per page. And, you know. Right. And uh, so I just went at it. You know, I just... My favorite shows then were the uh, the Newhart Vermont show, and it's Gary Shandling show came oh. out, and so I used those shows to teach myself to write. So I wrote like two of the Newhart shows, and I wrote like three of the it's Gary Shandling shows just to learn how to do it. 
-hmm. But around that time, I uh, was working freelance on Weekend Update, on Dennis Miller's Weekend Update. And I got to know uh, Alan Zweibel, who was hanging around at the time. Love Alan. And we kind of connected because we had the love for the old school comics and that sort of thing. And so again, fate, I, uh, they, I had a Saturday Live sweatshirt one night and I'm walking through Times Square and somebody walks past me and they go, hey, nice shirt. And it was Alan. And I just hadn't seen him in a while. And he goes, are you still writing? What are you doing? And I just said, well, coincidentally, I wrote three It's Gary Shandling show scripts. And, and Alan was the co-creator of the show. And he said, well, send me your best one. I can't promise you anything, but you know. Uh, so then he called me and really liked it and hooked me up with a manager. His name was Barry Secunda and he had, he, re, he managed all the original Saturday Night Live writers. Uh -huh. He was a New York manager. And then I ended up working on Alan Zweibel's next show that people don't really remember. It was called The Boys. And The Boys was about the Friars Club. And it had all these old time comedians, uh, Jackie Gale, Norm Crosby. Wow. Uh, uh, who else? Alan Garfield was in it. Jeez, uh, 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 I forget who else. Who, who, was the, uh, who was the neighbor on Three's Company, the older guy? Oh, um, mm. yeah, that guy. <laughs> Um, but anyway, it was all these old time guys. Jack, Jack. Anyway, it'll come to you. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that was my entree into Hollywood. He hired me for my first job in Hollywood. I literally wow. got off the plane from the uh, from New York, and the next day I got my first job on a sitcom. And I I know that you worked on Coach. The year that you were there was Phil Rosenthal there when you were there. My yeah, I worked on three shows with Phil. What, okay, but before you leave the, this one, did you know Jeremy Stevens? Yes, very well. Yeah, yeah. He, my life coach and, oh, yeah. Anyway, I, yeah, I saw that credit and I was like, oh. What else did you work with Phil on? Uh, one of the first show, my, the second show I actually worked on was a thing called Baby Talk. Baby, Baby Talk starred uh, George Clooney and uh, Julia, Julia from Newhart. Uh, who was the girl? Julia, geez, I forget names always. Anyway, it was uh, some, Ed Weinberger created it. Ed Weinberger from Mary Tyler Moore and Taxi. Mm -hmm. And Phil was there, he had a partner. Uh, uh, who has since died and I can't think of his name either. Phil's partner died? I believe so. If it's the same one that I'm thinking of, yes. Um, Wow. Oh, wait, maybe you're thinking of Alan Kirshenbaum. Yes, I am. It's not Alan Kirshenbaum that you're No, but Alan about. brought Phil with him on, Alan brought Phil and I on like three shows, including Coach. He had like his favorite team. Um, so, uh, I forgot what story I was talking But, uh, so yeah, so Baby Talk with Ed Weinberger, and Ed Weinberger is very mercurial, to say the least, mm -hmm. uh, and got in a fight with George Clooney during wow. the run through. 
there were scripts flying and it was like wow and we had to uh wrangle ed we we went up into the offices <laughs> and it's like nine or ten o'clock at night and ed is circling and he's angry and he's going i i'm gonna have his legs broken i just have to do it oh my god I, I have to do it and and oh. alan bless his heart it took him a half hour to talk him down. You can't, you can't. So that night we stayed up late and wrote a script where suddenly George Clooney is moving to Africa. <laughs> that was the compromise. Oh my God. But wasn't he the star? Was he not the star of the show? Well, he was, yes, he was one of the stars, but he was yeah. like, the lead actress had a baby and she was single and he, was the carpenter who's been working on her apartment nonstop with Bill Hickey. Sure. Uh, Bill Hickey, who, uh, you know, hit on Clooney a lot. Um, <laughs> I ran into George Clooney a couple years ago and we kind of picked up where he left off. Like that <laughs> show, he said that, and I have this distinction, they said that was the worst show business experience in my entire career, even after even after a fist fight with David, uh, David O'Russell on uh, Three Kings. <laughs> oh my God. Ed Weinberger was supposed to do my living room with Ed Asner. They, he, they co-wrote a book and uh, Weinberger didn't show up that day. We, we, we never did find out why, he just didn't. But. Well, Ed is like, I remember we're, we're in his office and we're all pitching a story and Ed's pacing. And I remember he's eating corn chips and leaving a trail. <laughs> and, we're, and then in the middle of a pitch, we're like, so what about that? And Ed just kind of you know, walks out the door and we're waiting because he's, did he go to the bathroom? And then we're kind of pitching a little more and like half hour goes by and like 45 minutes. And then finally we asked his assistant, where's Ed? Oh, he went home. <laughs> he just walks out in the middle of that. Wow. So, so these experiences, how was it working on Coach? Well, Coach was pretty amazing. It was like, you know, season seven you know, it was still top 20, mm -hmm. still made a ton of money for ABC. This was at a time when networks were still huge. Right. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was just like, uh, Phil was a foodie then. Right. So we would order our lunches from around the country. What? We would order the day before, like, all right, what are we getting? Uh, we're getting crabs from Maryland. And then they call the place, you know, we're getting muffalettas from uh, New Orleans. Great. And they would show up the next morning. Um, I mean, that place was like. How come I've never seen you at pizza and movie night? I've been, to, I used to go every Sunday to pizza and movie night. I don't think I've ever seen I don't, I think since I got a big screen in my house, I have my own mm. pizza and movie night with my wife now. Gotcha. Um, I, I used to go all the time. I, I, I went more often with in a, when he was at his other house. I was going to say, you must have been the, those early days when it was just around his living room TV, right? Well, yeah, even uh, when he had his apartment and it was, you know, pillows on the floor and, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I should go more. I, I, I started to go a little bit more before the pandemic, but... Um, so okay so so you did coach and then and where'd you go from there mm. 
Oh, Becker, you did the, the Ted Danson show. Yeah. How was that? Ted, Ted Danson was great and amazing. He, uh, oh, that's better. Look at that. It doesn't look like I'm uh, under a heat lamp at McDonald's anymore. <laughs> um, Ted Danson had uh, Lucio Ball's, was Lucio Ball's dressing room at one time. So it was like a three room suite. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, he opened it up to the writers and the cast and put in a pool table and wow. screen TVs and a full bar. And it was like, he made it our hangout. Wow. So that was cool. I mean, that, that was another hard show for me because it's always weird. Like I, I, I didn't watch, I never watched the show and I got the job and it wasn't necessarily a show I would watch. So it, it's always hard because it's like, well, we'll give you a lot of money to be here and write for us and kind of knowing like, I may not know how to do that. <laughs> there, there are some writers, I guess, that can walk into any situation and know exactly how to write for it. But if, if again, if I'm in a place where I don't connect, it just becomes really difficult. And I had a hard time there. Mm -hmm. uh, if you well, just don't, yeah. Well, what was the best experience? Where did you walk in and like, as soon as you walked in, you were like, this is it, I'm home. These are my people. Uh, Futurama. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was there for six or seven seasons because mm -hmm. in fact, the show was canceled three times, I think. And during one of those hiatuses, I went to Family Guy mm -hmm. and I felt like I'm, I'm not connecting. I don't feel like I'm connecting. So luckily Futurama got picked up again. So I was able to jump and go there. So that was great. It was just a really, it just, everybody was so smart. And I, it's like how, you know, I'm with all these Harvard guys and I went to two years of high school and two years of shop. How did I get here? No, I you know? was going to say that when you first were saying that you were, that you didn't go to college, I was like, God, every writer I know, like from Gabe's experiences, they were all Harvard guys. He was like the only guy that wasn't a Harvard guy. Um, part of it was in my meeting with Matt Groening and David Cohen. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, they liked my script enough to bring me in, but then once I told them I worked for NASA and worked on the space shuttle, that was like the final, like, all right, so your office will be over there. And, you know. <laughs> um, and I think they ultimately liked me too, because I was sort of more of a joke guy for them. And, but I also was more of the uh, emotional guy. I brought up, you know, as much emotional moments, you know, for them that they weren't, you know, as, as well versed in, <laughs> you know, they were more scientific approach you know i can feel that in the writing of your memoir so uh i get that um so okay so with the current stuff that you're doing now how 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 is that well you i mean you're only going to say good stuff about this but so how are you feeling about what you're doing now um i'm not even sure what i'm doing now but i you know Park boys you're doing that stuff trailer park boys and that is, here's an interesting distinction, you know, if if there's writers listening or whatever, because if you look at Trailer Park Boys, it's certainly filthy, you know, and every, literally every third word is fuck. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you look at something like Paradise PD, and that's wildly filthy. But 
it was much more interesting for me to write for Trailer Park Boys because even deep down though, there were, it was really about the people, the characters driving the story. Mm -hmm. Where Paradise PD is not so much. It's kind of this uh, quilt of shit and fuck jokes, you know. <laughs> not that the Trailer Park Boys isn't, but there's, there's some sort of heart there, you know. So in other words, rather than a story of them just robbing a liquor store, mm -hmm. They would rob the liquor store because one of the daughters wants their own trailer. So he wants to help get the money for, you know, so, so it makes them lovable. So speaking of lovable and, and dads, um, tell us about your kids. I know you have um, a couple of, you have twins. And so what are your, um, what are your, what are your twins up to in this COVID world? How old are your twins? They're 20, identical twins. I. I wanted to name them Martin and Lewis, <laughs> but my wife wanted no part of that. But I'm like, Marty and Lou, they're what, you know, uh, my friend, Eddie Gordetsky, do you know Eddie Gordetsky? I don't. don't oh, okay. But he, he offered my wife $5,000 if she went along with it. <laughs> okay. Is it your dog's name, Marty Allen? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, the people who know Allen and Rossi, there's probably not that many people. Oh, that I do. Yeah. Um, anyway, I forgot what I was saying. You were talking uh, about your boys, about your children. Well, yeah, yeah. They, they kind of grew up in my environment a little bit. I mean, they would actually sit at the table with me at table reads at Futurama, stuff like that. Oh, God, that must have been a kid's wet dream, that whole thing you were doing. Yeah, and, and to be you know, 10 years old and get to talk to Matt Groening about like, oh why, why are the Simpsons yellow? And, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. we, I, we, Matt had, he was used to have, well, Matt still has these 4th of July parties and um, we bring the families and my sons who were probably six, first thing they do, they go in his house and throw up in his living room. <laughs> and, uh, and then Matt has sons, so Matt instinctively just cleaned it up. And there's like, oh, Matt Crane's cleaning up my son's vomit. That's great. Um, but so yeah, they, they would, it's part of their world a little bit. And did they know that they were moving in a, did they think that's what everybody's dad did? Or did they know they were in a very sacred environment? I think they, they knew. They, that said some feeling of it. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, in fact, my sons had not seen me do stand-up live, and I, uh, so Vitello's here, the, you know Vitello's, yeah. they have the cabaret night, mm -hmm. so I said, I'm going to let them see what I did, you know, back then, and they brought all their friends. Now, wait a minute, how long had it been since you'd done stand-up? Uh... Late 80s, early 90s, late 80s, something like that. You were going to get up cold after not being up for 20, whatever, how many years, and you were just going to do some stand-up? Yeah, it's interesting because the pressure is different because you're going into a place where there's nothing to lose, it felt like. It's like if I had that attitude when I was doing it, where it's like, just fuck it, it just play, it just play, and that's all, you know. If I had that attitude when I was in the heart of it, I probably would have been a celebrity, I think. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, I don't, you know. Uh, and it luckily went great. And Wow. Uh, did, you, did you do like a practice set somewhere or did you just go up there and do it? 
I just did it out loud in my office a few times, you know. Wow. And did you and, do your old material or did you write new stuff? Uh, mostly the old stuff and probably a couple of new things. Mm -hmm. um, wow. But yeah, dad was like a hero for a week after that, you know. <laughs> they brought um, all their friends? Yeah. Yeah. And you were uh, probably already a dad hero because you worked on on Futurama you worked on Family Guy I mean so you're probably already here or their friends yeah 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 I guess so yeah um so yeah it went great and then uh that was a couple years ago so my son one of my sons he was going so crazy at college and found out about a stand-up night in one of the uh little cabarets there he started doing stand-up and he really had that fire and that thing you need to do it and was able to get in like two or three times and then uh then COVID hit and he really hasn't done it since and I'm curious I'm not sure if that fire is still there but um we'll see kind of as the world opens up has he been and writing during he's been writing scripts he yeah. actually wrote a feature already with his friend wow and he's doing these little short films and things like that. And uh, because uh, we used to do this thing when I growing up, when they were growing up, I would we would do we had these New Year's Eve parties at my house. Mm -hmm. And every year I'd have my sons do these little crazy short films. And we would show them at the New Year's Eve party. It became a tradition. <laughs> um, so, and you know, people were supportive and would laugh and it'd be a great experience for them. And they learn a little bit about how to make little movies. So then it, it, it kind of stuck with them, you know? So my other son is now looking to get into production and he's, uh, <clears throat> he's looking for internships and stuff like that. So what kind of, what does he want to do in production? What well, that's part of it. He's not sure he's, he's, uh, interviewing people now. It just, it just started literally in the last week or so. Now that stuff's opening up. Uh -huh. So my wife used to be in production. She worked on Golden Girls. Oh, wow. So we have still have a lot of connections, obviously. So uh, they get to take advantage of that. Very nice. Nepotism yeah. is wonderful. And how has COVID been for you as far as your creativity? Like, how is writing? Like, are, are you? Are you? Do you have a daily routine? Yeah. Uh, um, if I'm not on a show. You know, I usually get out into my office. I'll write from like 10 to three. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly of that will be the end of my day or sometimes if I'm really in a groove on something then I'll come back after dinner, you know, at like eight or nine at night and work for a couple more hours. Mm -hmm. And that's mostly five days a week, you know. Because um, we'll, I think what's changed during COVID is I'm just generating a lot of projects to develop and pitch you know so i'm learning right now that if i'm pitching uh i just need to have people attached that are gonna get it through the the ranks because you know i'm not uh i'm not matt graining you know so that's why you know i i got david cross attached to this thing and people just gonna open up more doors you know right right um so uh, these two young guys who want to be writers who are really good, they were both actors on sitcoms. One was on the Goldbergs and one was on Modern Family. 
-hmm. So they came to me with this idea, uh, uh, an animated idea, and as we're developing it, I go, you know, I think you have a connection to Eric Stone Street. He would be a good voice for this. And then he went to him and said, do you want to, you know, and he's like, let's, let's do it. So, you know, it's like people are going to pay attention, you know, then on top of those two guys that were, you know, they weren't the leads in the show, but they were prominent on those sitcoms. So Mm -hmm. all that, it just feels like that, at least for me, I need to, to do that as much as possible. You know, Jason Mraz, when I was pitching Jason Mraz, all the young women executives were like, I think I need to be on this pitch. You know, they explain. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Have you uh, written feature? Is, is feature writing an interest to you or are you is just the um, thing? I was toying around with it. I wrote a, uh, I wrote a movie with Bob Odenkirk years ago mm-hmm. based on... Uh, me and him and I and David Cross, a couple other people, but mostly Bob and I would, we had this reoccurring Friday night movie night of finding the worst, uh, what was it? Yeah. Um, we would find the uh, worst black exploitation movie we could find and we loved it. We loved those movies. And uh, so we got this idea of like, what are these movie nerds were transported into a black exploitation movie. Like these nerds were thrown into the 70s world of pimps and, you know, and uh, we ended up selling it to Warner Brothers. It, it didn't wow, get made. Wow, nice. But, um, yeah, so that was cool. And, and then it's funny, we wrote that so long ago and then it came up again. Somehow Tyler Perry heard about it. So we had a meeting with Tyler Perry about this crazy black exploitation, like uh, culturally inappropriate movie. And then he had some weird curiosity about it and then wanted us to hammer it down and make it not as offensive. And then we're like, we're not sure what the movie is anymore after that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that was, um, so yeah, I don't know. I may get into the feature world maybe when I retire or something I can, write some Lifetime movies or I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, you did write a book. So let's talk about that before we go. So it's a funny thing, how the professional comedy business made me fat and bald. So what what motivated you writing your, uh, yes, hold it up. That's good, very good. Um, There were a couple things. Part of it was, you know, I realized I was beyond the internet at night, burning like two or three hours doing nothing, just a lot of empty calories. So I was sort of like, what if I instead did something productive during that time and turn the computer off? So that was kind of the first step. And then when I was in Nova Scotia working on the Trailer Park Boys, I'd be in my hotel room for hours with them doing, I go, that was another reason to do it. But then uh, I just, I just heard this thing of like when, when you die, all your stories die with you, you know? And there were, a lot of these are stories I would tell over and over with friends and stuff like that. And so they were just in me. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I decided to write it, but also thought this would be the kind of book that I wish I found when I was 17, you know what I mean? 
for the young people who are in that moment that I talked about earlier of like, so what if I quit NASA and pursue this dream? What can I expect? What are the kind of things that can happen to me and how do I handle it? You know? So although my journey would obviously be different from everyone else's, it's still examples of like how one thing leads to the next, how you're going to run into walls and how you ways you can go around it or ways to not worry about it because you'll find another door to go through. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's so uh, I hoped it, it would be kind of inspirational. And then it feels like it's having the reaction I wanted, which is I'm hearing from young comics that I don't know. They're finding me on Facebook and stuff like that saying it was really helpful to them and inspiring. And it was, you nice. know, and also hearing from comics and writers that I haven't heard from for years and years and saying how it, you know, it spoke to them and hit them in a good way, you know? So before we go, Mike, pick, pick a story. What, Cherry, pick a story that is in there, something that you love that you've been telling for years that you can, some, some story that's going to leave everybody happy. Good. All right. I, uh, I used to open for a lot of bands at the bottom line in New York, which was this mm -hmm. fantastic music club. And uh, I'm opening for Kenny G two nights on the weekend, four mm -hmm. shows. And, uh, you know, I'm hanging with Kenny. We're getting to be kind of buddies. And uh, Kenny G, by the way, was great. I mean, he, he was, he, when he was started, he was playing more hardcore, like really great, cool jazz. But anyway, he, uh, second night, after the first show, and the bottom line in the back, just two big dressing rooms. I had the big dressing room, full bathroom. It was like a little apartment. He mm -hmm. had his on the other end. And I, between shows, I looked down in his dressing room, and he's got a party going on. It's celebrities and, and food and, you know, drugs. Not that I did drugs. But, I mean, it was like this full party. I felt like, I don't know if you remember Stardust Memories, where in the, there's two trains side by side and Woody Allen is alone with these old people in his train car. <laughs> and then there's this party going on. And the clowns and everything, yeah. And Sharon Stone is there and, you know. <laughs> and so I felt like that. I'm alone in my, and I'm trying to get his attention. I'm at my doorway, like, you know. And then he finally sees me and he's like, oh, oh. and he kind of, kind of runs over and goes, hey, yeah, Mike, I uh, got a, got a great party going on in my dress room. Uh, is it okay if I take a shit in here? Ah! <laughs> oh, 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 Kenny G. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You didn't get so, to that party, huh? So there's nothing better than leaving on a shit story. <laughs> well, Mike, thank you so much for doing this. It was lovely getting to know you. And yeah. I, I am, uh, I look forward to uh, maybe someday in the future we'll meet up at a at a Rosenthal Pizza movie night and uh, have a slice in a movie. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed this tremendously, and I am loving the book so much. One more time, we're gonna. Would you hold it up? It's a funny thing how the professional comedy business made me fat and bald. Mm -hmm. and it's really wonderful. It's it's wonderfully written, and I'm not easy with that and it's uh it's a delight I'm, I'm i'm really enjoying it thank you so much all right thank you okay all right. take care right. bye bye everybody